0: What is all this talk about Samadhi and shamatha and Vipassana and Kelesa? We might throw a few more in tonight too. Satipanya. Some confusion during the discussion group. like to go a bit more deeply into the samadhi aspect of the practice that we've been doing since Friday night. Fill in some of the spaces and perhaps begin to relate this to insight, to Vipassana. (coughs) There's an old Uh, Indian story, Indian India, of a king who was also a great yogi. And one day someone came up to him and wanted to know how that was possible, how he could both be a king, live the busy life of a king, and also be an accomplished yogi, a contemplative, a meditator. And so the king gave this person an assignment. He said, fill a jug with some hot oil and then balance it on the top of your head and go through every room in the palace without spilling a drop. So this person did that. They went through every room in the palace, balancing this jug of hot oil and came back very proudly pointing out that they had done it. The king then said to this person, good, now can you tell me what's going on in the palace? Any of the intrigues or plots or uh, romances or what's happening? What's going on in all those rooms? And the person looked dumbfounded and said, well, I don't know any of that. I've been so busy balancing the oil on my head that I don't know anything about the palace, really. I was just happy to get through that whole thing without spilling any oil. So then the king said, okay, now go through those rooms again. Only this time when you come back, I'd like a full report of what's going on. I mean, with the oil balanced on your head. And in a way, that's... uh, Don't take it too literally. That's the relationship between uh, samadhi, shamatha, or calm. Calm abiding, stability of mind, mental quiescence. These are words that are used for it. And vipassana, or insight. What we've been mainly practicing has been the first assignment. Can we just take that oil and get through the rooms without spilling it and burning ourselves. That's quite an accomplishment in and of itself. That is, can we calm the mind? Can we bring the mind to a level of stability? So that we can then investigate, inquire, look, and learn. Go through the palace and with this concentration observe just what's going on so that our report can be even more precise and have more depth. I hope I can make that a little bit more clear as we go on. First of all, I want to get a sense of how it is for you, and there's one, a kind of objective benchmark or landmark in some of the uh, old Tibetan texts, they talk about the first accomplishment in shamatha or calming, which is what we're doing, training. And I want to see if uh, we've accomplished that accomplishment. And what they say is, the yogi at the beginning, when they look into their mind, see mainly the cascading of thoughts, very much like a very Powerful mountain stream that's rushing down the mountains, a torrent of water. That's the first accomplishment. As they see that their mind, the thoughts in the mind are cascading like that. The second accomplishment, which we won't go into, maybe a little bit, it's up to you, is when it becomes like just a little mountain, just a little stream, not a mountain stream. In other words, it calms down a bit. Now, why is this an accomplishment? To see that your mind, the thoughts in the mind are cascading like a wild mountain stream. It's an accomplishment because everyone's mind is like that, but most people don't know it. The world is being run by people with cascading minds. Marriages are happening, wars are gone into, operations are happening, millions of dollars are being exchanged. You tell me. This is all going on, and that mind is what it's amazing that things aren't worse. And you've been looking at your mind now for a while. Maybe it's just my mind that I'm talking about. The reason it's an accomplishment is because. The accomplishment is the seeing of this and the acknowledgement of it. But there's a problem here because more more yogis are lost at this stage. There's a casualty rate here because you have a choice. You can see, oh, look at that. I didn't realize that my mind was this nuts, this wild, this untamed, this inconsistent, inconsistent, this much in conflict. Isn't that fascinating? This is what I've been living with and doing my life with. Wow. You could do that or else you could sink into despair and think I'm so incompetent. This is awful. My mind is just terrible. I'll never be able to, to do any of the things these books talk about and either attack the practice or attack yourself and can't wait to leave IMS and so forth. Which is it for you? You don't have to answer me, but answer to yourself. Have you seen that quality of the mind? And if you have, if your mind is like that, can you work from that, seeing that that you've already accomplished something by seeing that? And I'm not just trying to butter you up, honestly, because unless we see our predicament, how can we do anything about it? It'll all be fantasy, dreams, fashionings of something, some ideal state. That's not true. So step number one: this is the way my mind is. Perhaps not only can't you find the breath, but you don't even know where your nostrils are. Sometimes, is that true? You're so, your samadhi is so strong that you have no, nothing that I say can affect you. <laughs> Created a Frankenstein. (laughs) The object that we've picked to work with, the breath, here's another new word for you, is referred to as a kamatana or a meditation object. And it needn't be the breath, it could be a whole lot of other things, but we've picked the breath. And this kamatana is sometimes referred to as the guardian of the heart. All it is is a simple object that you're encouraged to come back to time and time again. Well, how is it a guardian of the heart? If you recall last night, we referred to the heart as not the physical heart or sentiment, But the vastness that each person is would include mind, if mind is thought of as thought, mainly, but it's beyond it, far beyond it. It includes emotion, what we think of as emotion, but it's far beyond it. It's really the essence of that which is us. I have to use words like us. It's the guardian of the heart in the following way. It's normal for a mind to be preoccupied. Sometimes, just take a look at your mind, perhaps you already know this, but if you don't, just you don't have to have a, a meditation retreat for it. Just spend a day and see how your mind spends its time. You know, Just like if you were doing an inventory, if you ask someone, well, how do you spend your day? Well, I go shopping and I wash up and I cook my... How does the mind spend its time? And you'll see that it probably a lot of what it's doing is it's preoccupied over and over and over and over again. Endlessly preoccupied with one thing or another. Now, a lot of these preoccupations do not bring us anything resembling peace. In fact, it can go into torment. The depths of sorrow and suffering, irritability. And of course, there's some joy there too, but even the joys are often preoccupations which we then want to hold on to, to immortalize, and then it slips through our fingers. So, the old yogis were wise, the Buddha and others. This is not unique to Buddhism. Okay, what we have on our hands here is a mind that is totally preoccupied all the time. I used to be that. If I practice hard, I'll be some that. Now I'm this. Constantly describing itself to itself, either negatively or positively or speculating about what it might be if it goes on this retreat or if it takes that job or if it does XYZ. And this is normal. It's nothing wrong with this. If you're a human being, your mind is, is a, it's a steady stream of preoccupations. So the wisdom was since these preoccupations seems to be producing sorrows, and so many of them are all these fanciful notions about something or another, I wonder if we can give it something to be preoccupied with which will, in a sense, yank it out of this mountain, torrent. And so they came up with other objects, one of which is the breath. So it's just an eminently practical kind of thing. Saying, look, mind, since you are going to be preoccupied about one thing or another, let's give you something that is at least not so dangerous. We'll call it the breath, or it could be anything else. A nice thought, reflect on the Buddha. Buddha, 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 or any number of other things. And so the whole art of Samadhi is switching our attention to this rather interesting and wild cascading of events that constitutes our mind, and at least temporarily giving it one other thing, a wholesome thing, to nibble on. In this case, we've given it the breath, and every time the mind goes off on one of its preoccupations, we say, thank you very much, but no thank you, please come back to the breath. Breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, and then it's off and running again. Is that familiar to you? Breath isn't words. If it doesn't have words, then it's not at least worrying. A lot of our suffering is having unwanted thoughts. We have many thoughts that we don't want to have, but they're there and they bring with them emotion. Even when we go to sleep, finally, but then they're dreams more unwanted thoughts or pictures. Fortunately, there's at least a few hours, the scientists tell us, that we have deep sleep, dreamless sleep, so that there is no more thoughts. We can just be. And when we don't have any thoughts, we don't have any problems. We're not worried about how we are doing. The main preoccupation, the mother preoccupation, is how am I doing? Am I okay? How will I be? And so we have that time to refresh ourselves. No unwanted thoughts. In samadhi practice, in switching to the breath, we're accomplishing that, even if you don't feel you have accomplished it. We're beginning to learn how to intentionally take our attention off so much of what comprises our life, our story, and switch it to an object that's harmless. The breath, and which becomes much more interesting if you watch it. Have any of you seen that? Has it become a little bit more interesting? No. <laughs> this is what Lenny Bruce used to say: a tough, a tough room to play. A <laughs> bunch of samadhied-out yogis. Lighten up, as they say in California. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) And so as we improve our ability to release ourselves from the tyranny of these preoccupations and switch over to the in-breath and the out-breath, A number of things happen. One thing happens, one thing that happens, is the compulsion, uh, the fixation that we have with so many of these events that come through the mind starts to get weaker. Because we prove to ourselves, maybe you don't realize you've done this, that you have a choice. You can either get caught up in the preoccupation and be taken on a journey And perhaps it's not such a pleasant one. Or you can say, excuse me, but I'm going to shift my attention to the breath. I'm going to nibble on that instead. Now, every time you do that, the power of the kalesas gets a little bit weaker. The power of, let's say, greed, hatred, and delusion, or unawareness, which is the three streams, the main uh, kinds of thoughts that we have because you now have a choice. You can do it or not. Let's say you then come to the breath. And if you can stay with the breath for even a few moments, let's say one breath, you've now reinforced that. Something else has changed. You've developed the ability to take an object intentionally and to decide to place your attention on it and to do that, to stay with it. So that quality becomes stronger because you've done it. The more times you're able to do it, the stronger it gets. And I would say also, the stronger it gets, which means the more concentrated you become, the stronger it gets, the more calm we become. And with each succeeding degree of calmness, as the calmness increases, there's a corresponding increase in happiness. The mind becomes happy to be calm and concentrated. And actually, the mind becomes very strong. And that's one of the main reasons we're doing samadhi practice, is to develop a very strong mind. Now, that word, strong, may have some connotations that are misleading. In inner work, a strong mind is a mind that's at peace. It doesn't mean just that you're passively buffeted around. Peace doesn't mean that. It means that the mind is silent. And a silent mind is a strong mind. Because it can attend to something, depending on the degree of silence, depending on the degree of the stability of that silence. It can... take up an object and examine it thoroughly. Now we're starting to move a bit into what is called vipassana, insight work, which requires investigation, seeing into the way things are. But unless the mind is fit to do that investigation, it's fanciful. For example, if you wanted to investigate any mind state or physical state in the body, and every few moments the mind got distracted while you were trying to do that, got pulled away to something else, you can see that that wouldn't be very much of an investigation because there are too many gaps. Let's say a fear comes up or loneliness and you try to examine it. And no sooner do you land on it with mindfulness than a few seconds later you're off somewhere else. The mind is making something else up or imagining what this is. So you never really got a chance to penetrate into the nature of what that which you started looking at is. Now, the Samadhi practice enables us to be fit to answer big questions. Many of us have wonderful, profound and magnificent questions. I come from Cambridge and around Harvard Square, everyone has profound questions but they don't have the consciousness that can answer it. So they're asking questions like, who am I and what is the nature of reality and what uh, what is the true nature of this body and what is life? And they have a cascading mind that's trying to answer the question. Well, the answers that come out are gonna be of that order. Lots of words, beautiful ones, well-chosen ones, but still words. So what we're attempting to do here, and I know for some of you it's been frustrating, Because, sure, we'd all rather look at our story and listen to our story than keep coming back to the breath. Now and then, fortunately, I meet someone who says, thank you for introducing this samadhi thing so I can take a break from my story. I don't know. I hope there are some people here. Is there one person who fits this? Usually there's one on a retreat. Thank you. You made my day. So if we're in a hurry to ask big questions without having a big mind, we're setting ourselves up for big disappointment. And that's, I think, in a nutshell, the the, the heart of why we go to the trouble of trying to develop a steady mind. We're trying to help the mind become fit to get to know itself. The mind loves to know. you know, It really does. And what it loves to know most of all is itself. Now, I'm not talking about narcissism for the sophisticated psychotherapist here. Because what it would want to know would be what we call narcissism. It's a, This is something that's beyond that kind of thing. It's just a clear seeing. It loves that. But in order to, for it to really taste that love, it has to be fit so that it can gain the fruit or taste the fruit of real inquiry. And in Vipassana, let's assume that as the mind gets stronger and is able to investigate itself, what that means is it penetrates to increasingly deeper levels of reality. It isn't like one big flash and then you've got it. That only happened in the 60s. Yeah. But we soon found out that we needed a lot of other flashes and little other things to. Okay. Good. You're losing some of your samadhi. As the. Samadhi practice develops as our mind becomes more calm, more steady, settles down, and experiences the happiness that comes with that. It is now more also self-sufficient. So it's able to look at things without being constantly taken away by all these side interests because it's so needy. If the mind doesn't have that kind of contentment, it's very hard for it to investigate because it's still so needy. As the mind becomes more content, it can really start to look at things and see them as they are and go deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what the thrust of our practice is about. Now, as insight develops, that is our capacity to see into the nature of things, just what is anything, but not a thought about it, but seeing its nature with direct perception, insight leads to calm too. So they work very beautifully together as the mind settles down and becomes more calm, it potentially can yield greater insight. It won't if you get stuck in the calm and there are people who get really caught up in samadhi, samadhi freaks. I don't think we in the West have to worry about that, personally. Uh, I think our culture is so restless and there's just so much, it's so active that it's difficult for us to calm down. If you go to Asia, they go into samadhi a lot easier. But, if we can develop some samadhi, our culture has helped us with investigation a lot more. Our minds, uh, in my experience, are much more eager and even capable of investigating. But we lack the calm. We're interested. We've had university and scientific training. It's in the culture now. Psychotherapy, we understand probing and exploring, but if we do that without a foundation, then the depth of those explorations is not is not much. Is not much measured against what's possible. Not measured against what you know or what I know, which may be considerable. There's more to go. And so, the, a calm mind, when used. A calm and steady mind, when used properly, yields insight. And the insights into things liberate the energy that's held captive in those things and leads to calm. And so there's a kind of circle. Now some people, some people do best by working mainly with insight and get calm that way. And other people um, flower through developing a lot of calm and having the insight grow out of that. Truly, they're interdependent. And even while we've been emphasizing samadhi for the last day or so, the possibilities of wisdom have been there all along. For example, let's say you have what is called a good sitting. The breaths are nice and fine and you're able to be with them a fair amount of the time and you start to taste some of some calm, some equanimity, a bit of joy. And you like it. And so we go and walk and then the next sitting we go scurrying to our cushion because it was that good for that forty five minute sitting, and here comes an hour sitting, it's going to be that much better. But instead, it's as if you never meditated in your life and you suffer. And then something is wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's just be with the breath the way it is now. That's wisdom. And in the process of seeing that, you let go of the expectation that this sitting is supposed to be like that sitting. And you just be with this sitting as this sitting is. What else could it be? It has to be this sitting. The other sitting is ancient history and perhaps you've seen yourself forcing it, trying too hard to be with the breath. And your shoulders tire and the jaw tires and the practice becomes joyless and you hate it. And maybe you see that and something in us knows and says, ease up a bit. Okay, pay attention to the breath, sure, but ease up a bit, aren't you? It's not gonna happen this way. Okay, and you do it. Well, that's a bit of wisdom, you just learned something. Even to know that your mind is very scattered and that, and that you need to calm it down because it's a liability to live with a very scattered mind takes wisdom. To get here, to come here and, and determine to practice with such beautiful weather outside requires some wisdom. So it's not as if when we're doing a samadhi practice, we kind of seal ourselves off and, okay, we, we just don't do any insight work at all. If I have an insight, I'll pretend I didn't have it because we're supposed to be doing samadhi. (laughs) These things come as they come, you know, and if you learn something, be grateful. It's good. The other way in which insight is developing along with the samadhi, if you recall, um, and I haven't given you a lot of encouragement to do this for a reason. There are many beginners on this retreat. Um, And I feel it's hard enough just to even get launched in the samadhi practice, let alone connect it with insight work, which we'll attempt to do in a small way. So I haven't talked it up too much, but let me refresh your memory. What was suggested is that if you run into a big problem, if anything, time and time again, intrudes on your ability to pay attention to the breath, then to drop the breath and to examine that. Okay, now, the degree to which you understand insight and vipassana, the degree to which you've been practicing for a while, is the degree to which you can work with that and use wisdom to release yourself and, in some cases, to uproot something that's blocking you making it hard for you to do do the calming work. For example, physical pain. Let's say you're trying to work with the breath and you keep having extreme physical pain in one part of your body and you keep coming back to the breath. You really try to do that. But the pain starts becoming more powerful and then the mind starts feeling self-pity. And before you know it, you don't remember when you were with the breath. Rather, you're rolling in self-pity or looking at your watch or maybe snatch a few glances at the pain, but not much. Well, with this set of instructions, if it were to be that severe, then you would drop this samadhi work and you would go to the pain and you would bring the same quality of attention that you're attempting to develop on the breath bring that to the pain itself. And one thing that you might see is that there's physical pain. The body is definitely in pain, what we call pain. Let's say it's a dull ache, if you were to report it to a doctor. But you can see that the mind is making something up about that dull ache. And you can see that those two events are related but different. Name and form. So the bodily sensations are sensations we would think of as pain. But when we look carefully, investigation or insight can show us, oh, this is happening to my body, it's, but my mind is taking it seriously. And because my body is suffering, my mind is suffering. Now, insight can help sever that connection. It, it isn't inescapable or ineluctable it is possible for us to clearly release ourselves from the mental part of it. In fact, the Buddha at one point was asked, what's the difference between the way a wise person experiences physical pain and a regular person like us? And the Buddha said, a wise person only gets hit with one dart. And we get hit with two darts. That means there's the physical pain, that's one dart. But if there's no self-understanding, then the mind gets hysterical, immediately connects with and elaborates upon the physical pain, and then it all becomes suffering. It all gets uh, blended together. Whereas the wise person knows this is my body, this is my mind. It's true their body hurts, but it doesn't follow that the mind has to hurt. Now this is not something, this skill or this state is not something that's handed to us. It comes out of work, hard work, of understanding the nature of mind and body. So that let's say if you had been doing some of this work for a while, your samadhi, the level of your samadhi, the stronger it is, the better a chance you have of investigating whatever you're investigating with some steadiness and coming to see what's happening. So if your samadhi is stronger, you might be able to see that. Oh, look at that. This is mind and this is body and be able to let go of that linkage so that you're still sitting in discomfort, but the mind isn't adding to it. And in the process, the actual experience of pain is much less and in some cases it falls away. Some of you may have experienced that. Or you might just look at the pain from the point of view of impermanence. Just focus on the bodily pain, having dropped the breath now, because we're now moving into insight work. And notice, look at that, how the pain isn't a solid sheet of anything, as I thought it was upon first experience, but it's quite an alive variety of energies coming and going. And so you could learn about the law of impermanence, from that. Okay, so that if you were to emphasize samadhi work, and I would suggest that you do, because in my <clears throat> my own personal experience has been that that has been an enormous help. That is the degree of calm and steadiness that you can bring to your insight work, the stronger that is, the more fruitful the insight work is. <clears throat> Just no question about it. Uh, Let me give you one more example so that the difference between samadhi and insight, samadhi and vipassana, is a little bit more clear because some of the people who are new uh, were having a hard time with that, at least this morning. (coughs) Let's take the breath and stay with the breath. We've been mainly emphasizing... coming in contact with the breath and maintaining the continuity of that contact. That is, trying to be with as many breaths as we can without being interrupted, without being taken away to something else. And so the emphasis is on continuous mindfulness. In, out, in, out, in, out, and you're away somewhere. But that, that changes with practice. We're away less often, and when we're away, we detect it more quickly. And that's a samadhi practice, we've been doing that. But now let's say we go to the self-same breath because it isn't in the object. Samadhi is not in the object, nor Vipassana in the object, it's in how we relate to the object. Now we have the same breathing in and breathing out and we need samadhi to stay with the breath. But supposing we now add insight and say, let's examine the nature of that breath, not just stay with it, but see what that which we're staying with is. What is it like? And perhaps we see that an in-breath has a beginning and an end. Look at that. And an out-breath. An out-breath has a beginning and an end. And then as we look closely, we might see that what we call an in-breath is made up not of one unified energy called in-breath, but it's a lot of arisings and passings away happening rather rapidly so that the breath is not even what we thought it was. It's not some solid thing called the breath. And we begin to learn about one of the main laws of the universe, that everything that appears disappears. If something has the nature to appear, then it also has the nature to disappear. They go together and the consequences of that are profound and are at the core of our work. And so you could learn that on the breath Now you're using, let's say, the samadhi you've developed, but you're adding a little bit of extra interest to notice the characteristics of that breath. And now it's yielding some wisdom as well. Just to acknowledge suffering. Sometimes the breath is rough, or there's a lot of blockage in the breathing and it's no fun to breathe. It feels as if we're suffocating. We don't know quite what to do, but it doesn't feel good. To simply turn to that and to consciously understand I'm suffering right now. That's a part of wisdom. It's the first noble truth of the Buddha. To understand if there is any dukkha or suffering or unsatisfactoriness, to know it. understand at this moment I am unhappy. So we've learned that from the breath. It's not the end of the practice but it's certainly the beginning. It's very important to know that rather than to hide from it. Now supposing you continue to watch the breath and as the breath becomes more calm and more refined and we're able, our samadhi becomes strong and we're able to be with breaths over an extended period of time, you may come to see, not as an ideology, but as a fact, that we don't own the breath, that the breath belongs to nature, that there is no breather, really. There is just breathing. And we are being breathed. At first, it can be frightening. It can be quite a wonderment when you start to allow that realization, and it's not an idea, it's an actuality, you feel it, you experience it, that the breath is just happening. In fact, everything is just happening. And we don't own it. It doesn't belong to us. Well, that's another piece of wisdom, another possibility is we come to see that the breath is not self. It is, but it isn't exactly what we thought it was. And the phrase, my breath, or I'm breathing, is a conventional use of language. But that's all. It isn't accurate about what's happening. Okay, I hope this makes... um, I felt that some of you who are very new, many of you this weekend, to this practice should at least have some sense of uh, the frame of reference that we are working with the breath a lot. But it's not just a very narrow concentration exercise. It's part of a much larger approach to developing wisdom, wisdom which has enough depth to free us And let me elaborate just a bit on that, and then I think we'll uh, call it an evening for this, anyway. You know, I don't know if you actually did it, but some of us did, and many children do, b- burn themselves. I remember burning myself. and everyone in the house getting quite excited and hysterical and rubbing butter and this and that and all kinds of remedies being feverishly submitted. And it was very painful. And I learned to not touch fire because the lesson was deep enough that as there was an exchange between my body and this substance known as fire and the universe taught me, no, you don't touch that with your hands. You don't do that." And I got that one, at least most of the time, it seems. And so that was a piece of wisdom. I learned it. And our learning of wisdom is not really different. The problem is that so many of the things that we have to learn about that may be even more dangerous than fire or more beautiful, I mean potentially useful, extraordinarily useful, are very, very subtle. And must be learned at a tremendously deep level for us, for change to come about. We saw the fire was able to penetrate to the heart. The heart was able to grasp it and understand this is something that I don't do. This is not beneficial to me. I won't do this anymore. I learned this lesson. Now the whole approach of wisdom, why we develop samadhi, why we use mindfulness, is we're attempting to introduce something into our personhood that enhances our sensitivity sufficiently so that we can begin to learn lessons that will free us from other forms of suffering that are like fire but don't advertise themselves so easily and are not as blatant. Now these are known as the Kilesas. Greed, hatred, and delusion, and their many offspring. And I'd like to just finish with a way of conceiving of our practice, which I think we said a little bit about on Friday night. These kalesas are forces in the universe. In a sense, they're impersonal forces that affect all of us. It's not that we're trying to say, you're a greedy person and you're bad. We're not saying that. We're saying that greed comes upon you and you suffer as a result and you make others suffer as well. It's not a good way to live. It makes no sense to be greedy. If it worked, we wouldn't be talking this way. We'd all just be as greedy as we want and get on with it and just be delighted. See, but it doesn't work. The whole planet right now is being inflicted by one person's greed against another. Of course, it isn't called that. And we wonder why we have so many problems. We are the problem. Okay, now, how in the world are we going to learn that just as fire is something you don't touch, that also greed and hatred are things that you don't touch? You have to learn how to work with those because if you don't, we'll get hurt just as we get hurt with fire and the biggest one of all is unawareness, ignorance, because that underlies all of it. To the degree to which we don't see what we're doing, we don't see the consequences of what we're doing, we keep doing it over and over and over again. So that we need, one translation of vipassana is extraordinary seeing. We need extraordinary seeing. It's a bit like a blind person being given sight. But what the practice is saying is that it can happen we can improve our, our our sight. And with each improvement of sight is the possibility of understanding, not merely intellectual understanding, but understanding that penetrates to the depth of the heart. Now, the struggle, one way of conceiving of this struggle, is of wise attention or sati and panya, mindfulness plus plus wisdom, mindfulness plus discernment, is in a life and death struggle with these kalesas for the control of our heart. Well, which will it be? I mean, are we going to care for the heart, which is the only really valuable possession we have? We may think it's our car or our house, But even that is valuable because we attach it to what we think of as being ourself. The heart is the most precious thing there is. Now, if it keeps getting hurt over and over and over again, and if we can't see how it's getting hurt, it makes life quite an ordeal. And the promise of the Buddha's teaching, which each one of us has the option to take up, is that there is something available, a teaching, a set of practices, support, to begin to examine these tendencies in each one of us that obscure and cover over the heart. And so mindfulness... And by the way, the Kalesas hate to be looked at. They just hate it. It's the one thing they're always avoiding. And our practice is learning how to look at them directly. Flashlight right at them. Oh, greed. Don't look at me. I don't want to think of myself as being greedy. Or else we'll then switch and say, yes, I'm greedy. Now we're into hatred. So the Kalesa has just put on another mask. Yes, you're an incredibly greedy person. You're just awful. Now, What what wisdom is trying to do is trying to, to show us, look what's happening. Look what's happening to you because of this false identification with these energies. And the degree to which mindfulness is able to do it is the degree to which it's developed. And what we're doing is developing that. So every time you turn to a breath consciously, and are able to be mindful of that breath, it's not a small thing. I think one of the big problems at the outset is that it's very easy to underestimate the power of this samadhi practice. After all, there's nothing much to it. You don't need to be very intelligent to understand the instructions. It's on the level of Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. It's just saying, pay attention to the breathing, And if your mind wanders from the breathing, as soon as you notice that, come back. That's all. But then we're so intelligent, we then weave all kinds of things around that. But what if and maybe, no, just come back, just come back. Now, it's very difficult, I know, at the outset, to at a deep level grasp that such a simple operation of focusing on the breath coming in out of your nostrils or at your tummy or wherever, coming back to that time and time again, can be revolutionary or at least contribute to some radical improvement or development in our life. We want something that's much more complex and that will feed the mind, the thinking mind, something much more rich. But that's the problem, often when it's misused. So I hope, if nothing else, you understand that the don't be deceived or misled by the simplicity of mindfulness of breath. Don't reduce it to some mere concentration exercise. It isn't. It's a vehicle. It's not even about the breath. Breath is just an excuse to develop ourselves so that we can learn that fire is hot. Okay.